Let us pray. Guide us, O oh God, by your word and your Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light. In your truth, find freedom. And in your will, discover peace. Through Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In his new book, Troubling the Water, The Urgent Work of Radical Belonging, local leader and pastor Ben McBride talks about a time when he came home from work to find a stranger, a fellow black man, sitting on the front steps of his house. Now, this wasn't an unfamiliar experience for McBride. Many times he came home to find unknown neighbors either sitting on his front stoop or on the hood of his car, a reality that he was good with most, most days. After all, he chose to move to that particular neighborhood in East Oakland. He intentionally placed himself inside the community he was serving as the executive director of City Team at that time. He was invested in doing the work of peacemaking and anti-violence in the East Bay. But that night, he was tired after a long day of work, and all he wanted to do was ask this apparent trespasser to move along from his steps, to make way for his wife and his kids so they could get to their front door. But he didn't. He writes, for some reason, that night, instead of pushing past the brother on the steps, I chose to pause, step back and create space for a bridge. A bridge that would allow me to connect with this brother, witness his perspective, and understand his pain. And as I stepped back and listened harder, he says, something changed in the air between us. After we had talked for a bit, he looked at his hands and then back up at me and said, man, no disrespect but I grew up in this house. I used to live here. McBride continues, I learned over time that acknowledging and accepting his story, hearing his story, was a prerequisite for us to reach some level of understanding, to see each other in the most important way, as human. To see each other in the most important way as human. Who knew that that would be such a hard thing for us to do? Wars rage within and between more countries than we can even keep track of these days. 18 people are now dead from one mass shooting in Maine this past week. Entire cities have been reduced to rubble, entire communities living new and old traumas. The entire world is wondering how we got here in the first place and how we are going to get out. Now, I am not over-exaggerating when I say that our existence as a human race depends now more than ever on our collective ability to see each other as human and as sacred as something similar and yet unique, as something worthy of preserving. 
But I am also not under-exaggerating when I say that honing that ability starts right here and right now in community with adults and with children, strangers and friends, those who look like you and those who don't, those who live like you and those who don't, those who think like you and believe like you, and definitely those who don't. To put it another way, our survival depends on us actually being with each other, being with the other. And I can't think of a better place to do that than at church. Why? Because here we believe that our one humanity is a gift from our one God. So this fall, instead of asking the usual churchy type questions, we have been asking questions of each other and of ourselves, all with the hope of building a bridge between you and me, us and them, between humanity and God. Sounds easy enough, right? I ask you a question, you answer it. You ask me a question and I answer it. And just like that, we've got world peace. Hardly. As I said in week one of this series, at the core of our complicated issues as a society lies a rather simple diagnosis. We have become a people who only belong to ourselves. Economies of one. My needs, my wants, my survival over yours. Even the very questions we ask of each other reflect this isolated reality. For example, instead of asking each other, where did you get your name, we say, so, what's your name? Instead of asking each other, what people and places have shaped you, we ask, so, where are you from? But the worst offender of them all is a question that gives us the illusion of connection, but somehow only alienates us further. It also happens to be the single most common question we ask of each other every single day, and it's this, how are you? No, really, how are you? The question itself is curious if you think about it. How, as in in what way or to what degree or amount, are, as in to be, you, as in, well, you. So in other ways, in what way or to what degree are you being? Are you killing it at work or failing miserably? Are you happy in your relationships or feeling completely alone? Are you making a ton of money or a ton of debt? Are you healthy or sick, happy or sad, empty or full? No, really, how are you? I guess it makes sense that we usually respond to this ridiculous question with equally ridiculous answers. I'm fine, I'm good, no, I'm great. I mean, we all know the routine, right? Deflect, pretend, and maintain the distance between our various islands of one. How's that for seeing each other as human? At last Sunday's adult formation class, I shared what I believe is the single most important step towards cultivating belonging. It's not revolutionary or anything, it's simple. It's authentic storytelling. Not, I'm fine, I'm good, I'm great storytelling, but honest, complicated human storytelling. Using photos from my own story, I modeled two extremes. Round one was the surface level version. Look at this picture, what do you see? 
Well, I see a smiling girl in high school in her cheerleading uniform. She's smiling, so she must be happy. She's in a cheerleading uniform, so she must belong. But in round two, I went beneath the surface. Look at this picture. What do you see? Well, I see an Asian-American girl who struggled her whole entire life to fit into predominantly white spaces. But by the time she got to high school, she figured out how to hide in plain sight, to look like she belonged. There are always multiple versions of the same story, the stories we tell and the stories that we live. Same principle applies to scripture. Just look at our passage for today. Now, if this text were a photo, what do you see? Well, I see a real pretty picture, full of lots of beautiful things like gold and silver, crimson yarn, fine leather, and acacia wood. I also see a lot of happy people doing wonderful things like bringing gifts, making art, and building something really important. Is that what you see? Because at an initial glance of this scriptural portrait, it would be easy to assume that the Israelites are a wealthy and a talented people, a generous and a faithful people, a people for whom belonging and community and trust come easy. If we were to ask the question, how are those Israelites? Based on this picture, we could easily conclude they're fine, they're good. You know what? They're great. But one need only scratch lightly beneath the surface to uncover a much different, much more authentic, a much more human story. You see, in addition to asking these questions of each other, we've also been asking them of God's people in Exodus. For example, what are their names? Well, their individual names are many, like Reuben, Simeon, Miriam, and Moses. But as a people, they are called the Israelites. Where are they from? Well, their ancestry traces back to Abraham and Isaac, and then Jacob, who moved his entire family to the land of Egypt. And what do they do for a living? Well, the Israelites were slaves. Or rather, they were slaves. You see, the shiny, happy people from our picture also happened to be an oppressed people, forced to do bitter, back-breaking manual labor in Pharaoh's economy. That is, until the God of their ancestors sees their suffering, hears their cries, and delivers them from Pharaoh out of Egypt and into a land to call their own. But first, they have to wander through the wilderness without knowing where they would end up. Then they had to rely on God's provision, not their own efforts or labor to survive. Finally, they had to trust in and follow this leader who had a strange habit of disappearing for weeks at a time to talk to God. And as you can probably imagine, none of these lessons came easy for the Israelites. In the midst of their wandering, they complained about the lack of food. When they were given manna, they hoarded some away for a rainy day. When Moses took a little too long coming down from the mountain, they fashioned a golden calf to worship and behold. And even then, God claimed these imperfect people as God's own and promised to dwell in their midst. 
But given their track record, it makes sense that when it comes time for the Israelites to build that dwelling place, God doesn't leave anything to chance. Seven entire chapters of Exodus include God giving Moses painfully explicit instructions about the construction of not just the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, but also the table for the bread, the lampstand, the curtain, the oil, even the vestments for the priests. Every detail considered, every detail communicated. But then in chapter 35, something changes, something shifts in the air between God and God's people. Instead of more detailed instructions or an act of divine power, God issues a simple, open invitation to the Israelites. Whoever's willing, whoever has a generous heart, come as you are, bring what you have, and help me build my house. For some crazy reason, God trusts the Israelites, and they show up. And as scripture tells us, not only do they show up, but they bring more than enough. Their gifts, their skills, their presence is more than enough to do the work. So much, in fact, that Moses has to tell them to stop. Now, contrary to what the picture might suggest, we know that the Israelites are not a particularly generous or faithful people. We know that they don't have a lot to spare and that as slaves, their skills were limited at best. And yet somehow they are able to do and be and give more than enough. How is this even possible? Because they finally realize that they owe their very lives to God. Everything they have and everything they are belongs to God. They belong to God. And in that belonging, God invites them to build something holy, a place where God can be found. You see, as it turns out, the real miracle of Exodus isn't actually the parting of the Red Sea or water flowing out of a rock or a staff turning into snake. No, the real miracle is right here. Ordinary faithfulness born out of extraordinary grace. Meager gifts transformed into abundant generosity. Regular humans being able to just be, to just exist because of a great and a merciful God. So maybe the question we should be asking each other isn't, how are you? But rather, how are you? How are you, you? How are you here? How are you alive? How are you so beautiful and so talented and so smart? How are you so blessed and so cared for and so seen and so loved? How are you? After all that you have been through, how are you still able to sing? After all that you have lost, how are you still able to hope? After all that you have seen, how are you still able to believe? How are you? To whom do you owe your very life, your very freedom, your very breath? 
That is the beautiful thing about this place, this community, this church. We may have different names, we may come from different places, we may do different things for a living and listen to different voices, but each of our answers to this very question is the same. How are you? I am here. We are here. You are here because of God. And for some crazy reason, that God invites us to participate in this nonsensical ecosystem where somehow everyone gets what they need, but no one gets what they deserve. It is a system that by all worldly standards is highly inefficient and wildly mismanaged. It doesn't come with a detailed budget or an elaborate work plan or even a pledge goal. It isn't measured by points or dollars or merit or even good deeds. The truth is, is that God could be fully, all of this, even the tabernacle, could be fully sustained by an all-powerful God. But nope. That God invites any and all whose hearts are willing, whose hearts are stirred, whose lives have been blessed, whose lives have been saved to come as they are with whatever they have so that together with God, we can build something holy. We can make a place where God can be found. And here's the best part of all. I see those places, those hearts, those gifts, and those skills. I see that abundance, that more than enough all around us. I see 800 water bottles distributed over the course of two days to new students and their families at Cal Move-In this year. A steady stream of new neighbors making home on this block. More than enough, too much, in fact. I see newcomers walk through those doors every single week, many from our local neighborhood, many from the university, many asking our staff and our leaders if we really mean that whole all are welcome thing. And then seeing the look in their eyes when we answer absolutely, unequivocally, yes. More than enough, too much, in fact. I see our youth group and our youth leaders being worried that their trip to Mexico wouldn't have the funds it needed to go down, only to raise so much support that they were able to leave a generous love offering with the missionaries they served with. More than enough. Too much, in fact. I see a couple with a young baby who had to undergo heart surgery only to come home to meal after meal after meal, provision after provision on their doorstep, more than enough, too much, in fact. I see our mobile food pantry that was started almost two years ago now on a wing and a prayer, an effort to provide a little relief for our neighbors in need. In the beginning, the hope was that enough people would just sign up to serve and enough people would just show up to receive. But today, the sign-up sheet has become pointless because there are way too many hands to help. And after the 80 to 100 households get their groceries for the week, the extra food somehow finds its way beyond our front porch to more of our precious neighbors in need. More than enough. Too much, in fact. When I look hard enough at these pictures, do you know what I see? I don't see a particularly faithful or generous people. I see a particularly faithful and a generous God.
a God who saved these people from their depths, forgave them their sins, and patiently loved them over and over and over again into being. Grace upon grace upon grace. Do you see it too? So your homework this week is simple, my friends. Answer this question. How are you? Consider your story. Consider your life. Consider the grace that you have received. And if your heart is willing, if your heart is generous, take whatever you have, whoever you are, and let's build something holy. Let's build a place where God can be found. Amen.